From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Why risk the spread of coronavirus by partially reopening the state? Governor Jared Polis says total elimination of the virus was never feasible, and people's options were running out. Well, well, certainly for people that can, they are staying at home. Uh, And Ryan, and and some people can do that because they they don't need to earn a living or they can have their groceries delivered. Others can't because they simply can't pay their rent or buy food if they're not working. Also in our regular conversation, how the state got a bit cloak and dagger to protect a shipment of COVID-19 tests. Then a flower farm switches crops to help during the pandemic. And a Denver couple takes what might seem like a big risk these days, opening a new business. We wanted to provide a service, uh, give back to the community that we've enjoyed for five years now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a big day for at least some Coloradans. The first time in more than a month they can get a haircut or walk into a clothing store. Part of what Governor Jared Polis calls his safer-at-home policy in the face of COVID-19. But it comes with risks, as I discussed with him in our regular conversation, which also covered testing. Governor, thank you for being with us again. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Ryan. You've called moving from stay-at-home to safer-at-home a calculated risk. Take me into your calculations, because anyone in your position would have to answer the question, do I accept a rise in illness and death to reopen the economy? How do you answer that for yourself? Well, any decision is a calculated risk, uh, trying to keep people uh, locked in their homes longer than they can possibly do it. What the data and the science show us and the projections done by CU and and others is that what matters a lot more than the date that the stay-at-home order ends is what behavior it's replaced with that we can sustain for a period of time in May and June and July. How do we enshrine these social distancing norms into our society and the way we live and wearing masks and staying apart from others as we enter the sustainable phase, meaning a way of life that we can continue for many months ahead as long as necessary to avoid a peak and to make sure that we can have enough beds to serve everybody and save everybody who we can, who who can encounter this virus. Okay, you say asking people to stay home longer than they can possibly do it. What evidence do you have that Coloradans had reached that point? Well, well, certainly for people that can, they are staying at home. Uh, and Ryan, and, and some people can do that because they, they don't need to earn a living or they can have their groceries delivered. Others can't because they simply can't pay their rent or buy food if they're not working. So for people who can stay at home and have that luxury, who have that privilege, it's a great way to stay safer. For those who can't or those who don't want to, they need to re-engage in a safer way as possible uh, with a sustainable way of, of life that allows us to get through these next few months with the social distancing we need to avoid a catastrophic event. So what I'm hearing you say is that there had to be an economic calculation here. It wasn't purely a question of what doctors might have been telling you? Well, I think what I'm saying is that the data that was presented to us said that the end of the stay-at-home order date simply does not matter in terms of when the pe- of what the peak is, of how many people are affected by coronavirus. All that it determines is the timing of this. And that's what we've talked about from the very start. There was never any plan in Colorado or America to eliminate coronavirus. That might be possible in island nations like Taiwan and New Zealand. We, I think they've succeeded and we wish them well. We have over a million cases. The goal was to spread it out 
And the way you spread it out is you have social distancing over time. So there's no data that's been presented to us that says that stay-at-home has anything to do with what the level of that peak is. It only has to do with the timing of the peak. I think that's an interesting perspective. In other words, do you expect most Coloradans, I think you've said something to this effect before, but let's be very clear about it. Do you expect that most Coloradans over time will contract this? Oh, yes, absolutely. Most Americans are going to get this. Unless there's a vaccine early, uh, which seems unlikely, this is coursing through the population. I mean, there's the known data is 1.1 million, Ryan, but that is a understatement. There are many asymptomatic people never diagnosed. It's in the millions. You know, who knows whether it's three, four, five, eight, ten million 10 million Americans have had this already, but some very large number have and many more are going to get it. A respected Colorado polling firm surveyed about a thousand people earlier this month. Sixty four percent said they'd prefer a policy aimed at slowing the spread of coronavirus until, quoting, more widespread testing becomes available, even if that means many businesses have to stay closed. Does that indicate to you that Coloradans think you're moving too quickly? I mean, what you decided shows that they support our policies. That's what we are doing. Uh, the, I think there they want more testing. Well, so do I. <laughs> so does everybody. Uh, testing doesn't cure coronavirus, to be clear. Uh, if it identifies you as having it, you still have to stay at home. And if you go to the hospital, you get treated. But unfortunately, testing doesn't cure it. A cure will cure it. A cure could come before a vaccine. There's some promising therapies and promising studies being done. What would that mean? Uh, it would mean that there are some therapies that significantly reduce the fatality rate from coronavirus. We certainly hope that that is the case, but we don't count on it. That's why we are extending the social distancing requirements. It's why we don't have bars and restaurants open. It's why there's the strictest guidance around the safe practices around stores, similar to the guidance around the, the critical stores that were open during this entire period. Uh, a lot of that learning and what's worked is being applied to other parts of the retail sector. Let me be clear that the lifting of the stay-at-home order and the transition to safer at home is not true for everywhere in the state. So many of the metro Denver counties, for instance, have decided to stick with stay-at-home until around May 8th. Uh, just some context there. But under your rules and the, the parts of the state following them, hairstylists and other personal services can open today. Uh, we've gotten some listener questions about hairstyling in particular it's not something you can do from six feet away. I, I can't picture scissors on a selfie stick. Um, why open salons up now? Yeah, I think here's what, what people are failing to get with the data. Um, this virus is here for the future. So you can do one of two things. You can either say we're not going to have salons as part of our society because we're going to keep them closed in May and June and July and August, September, October, November. They'll be closed forever. Or um, they open up with strict precautions because it's not going to be any safer now than it is in September or December. I mean, it's it, the virus is out there. It's still going to be there. So it's about figuring out how to do the things that we need to do in our lives. And I think most Coloradans would say, yeah, we, we, we like having, you know, an institution like salons. We think that that should exist as opposed to not exist. So let's figure out how to do it in a safe way. How do you do the that? The virus will be with us for many years. Yeah, paint for me the picture of a salon that's open now. What, what, what should they be doing? So we have uh, detailed safety precautions at coloradosaferathome.com. That's the website, coloradosaferathome.com. They go by each category of type of business, what you need to do in an office, what you need to do in a salon, what you need to do in a retail store, that have those practices that are required under law. This is a health order, an executive order. It has the force of law that really ups the bar on the normal health requirements. I mean, keep in mind, even in normal times, a salon is a regulated entity. They avoid hepatitis outbreaks and other outbreaks. They sterilize equipment. Uh, they 
do a lot, they're being asked to do a lot more. You know, there's some folks that will want to get their hair done for a year, and, and that's fine. If you're able to cut your own hair and you do that at home, that's absolutely terrific. If you can't, then you're agreeing to take on that extra degree of risk to go get it, just as you are if you choose to work. So people need to, you know, make those decisions in their lives, but it's not going to be any less safe now or safer now than things will be in six months or a year. So it's how do you sustain this, right? How do you do this where uh, you have with the virus out there, just as you do for other conditions, how do you manage that with a lifestyle that's sustainable for the medium and long term? If you're staying at home right now and acting uh, and planning to never get coronavirus, you're saying that's not actually the goal. The goal all along has been to avoid a surge that inundates the hospitals. I think there's some people that are in a position where they can stay at home for a very long period of time, for six months or a year, minimize their interactions, wear masks, go to the grocery store. If that's the way people want to live their lives for six months or a year, then they do significantly reduce their chance of contracting coronavirus. And effectively, what they're doing is they're waiting it out till there's a vaccine, which could be nine months, 12 months, 18 months. I, I think there will be, Ryan. And even before a vaccine, there can be therapies and cures that have some uh, improvement on the situation. We might be on the threshold of some of those marginal ones already. So, yeah, there, there will be some people that can do that. But obviously, the vast majority of people can't do that. They, they can't yeah. not earn income and work for a year. Um, most people can't do that. So many of them will encounter the virus. Absolutely. And many have already. Governor, your stance on testing, I have to say, has confused me. And and listeners, I think, share the confusion based on some of what we heard on Twitter. So let's clarify it here. On one hand, you've said testing is an important puzzle piece. But in the past, you've sounded almost put off when you're asked about testing, telling people, listen, stay home if you have symptoms. Don't go out, rush to get tested. It's not like there's any treatment anyhow right now. Square those two thoughts for me, so I, I really understand where you you stand on testing. We have acted aggressively to increase testing in Colorado. We increased it ten times uh, from where it started. We have free testing today at, at, at I think Kroger's in Boulder and in Greeley, and uh, we've been all over doing drive-through clinics. I think we were one of the first states to do drive-through testing. But from an individual perspective, what people say is, "I'm sick. Do I have COVID-19?" Well, people really want to know. There's no benefit beyond the psychological one to knowing. There's no benefit to your health from knowing because if you need medical care, you need to call 911 and go in. But for 90, 95% of the people that track COVID, you just get better in your home. And maybe you want to know later, was it the flu? Was it COVID? What was it? You can take an antibody test and it'll tell you that. But you know, there's there's been this sort of mad focus on testing when what's actually more important here is the social distancing, protecting our most vulnerable, which testing has a role in that, and it's not what you think. It's not testing people who are sick. It's actually testing people who are healthy, which we're doing. We're testing the workers that go into senior facilities because uh, many of them can be asymptomatic. About half the people who have COVID-19 have no symptoms, but they're contagious. So how do we screen people out of the workforce that encounter people that have a much higher fatality rate? And so we're doing that, and we're partnering with CSU to do that, and we're using the Colorado National Guard to do that. But again, we're testing people that are perfectly healthy and have no symptoms uh, because it's very important to find out if they are bringing it in into our senior care facilities that have a much higher fatality rate. Square this for me. You're, you're such a data guy, and yet you say there's no benefit to testing, which is data. It tells you how the disease is behaving. It tells you where hotspots are. So I, 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 don't, I don't understand how the data guy says there's no benefit. 
oh, there's enormous benefits on the data side. I was talking about clinical benefits of the patient. Okay, you know? okay. Uh, we absolutely want to know everything that's going on, and we find that out. There's antibody tests. There's the active viral test. There's the symptom tracker. There's a lot of ways we do that. The more, the better on the data side. When we talk to the general public, we're talking about it from, from your perspective. As an individual, there's no clinical benefit to knowing. If you need medical care, you go in. If you don't, you know, you should get better in a few days or, or a week. It just depends. The Symptom Tracker is a website from the state where you can enter in symptoms and it may help create a sort of heat map. What would prompt you to move from safer at home back to stay at home? What would prompt you to say, we've gone too far, it's too loose? Well, the goal is really to really find site-based or community-based outbreaks and act boldly and decisively with regard to those sites. So what that means is if there's an outbreak at a particular factory or building, you lock down the folks and put people in quarantine in and around that rather than the whole city, rather than the whole county, and rather than the whole state. So it doesn't mean there won't be times when stay-at-home might be required of certain people in the state at certain times. But uh, we hope to be able to do that earlier with the visibility. You talked about the importance of testing. Testing is a key piece of that early visibility into where outbreaks are occurring so we can take strong site-specific actions rather than wait until they they lead to the need for statewide action. More than a week ago, Colorado Senator Cory Gardner announced that he'd help negotiate a deal for the state to buy 100,000 tests from South Korea. Maryland apparently negotiated something similar, and its governor was so concerned about federal seizure that he had his National Guard in place to protect the tests. Have Colorado's tests arrived, first off? Yes, we didn't tell anybody about it until after they got here for that very reason. We were worried that the federal government or somebody else would take them. So once they got here, we talked about it. They're here. They're being deployed. Uh, We're one of only two states. We cried over 100,000 tests from South Korea. We're we're very excited to deploy those. How do we pay for them? Uh, (laughs) Cash. Hard cold cash. Uh, we say we, the emergency funds that we've used for this crisis. So we uh, we had to um, pay basically on arrival with some deposit. And so we had to work with the ambassador to South Korea and others to make sure that this was on the up and up. It was with a major South Korean corporation. And we did, uh, once they arrived, uh, complete the payment. You were so concerned that the feds might swoop in as they had with ventilators that you kept this under wraps. Well, yeah, we kept it under wraps. We simply didn't know if anybody would swoop in. I mean, we didn't want another state or the feds or anybody. Uh, the danger with the feds and the FEMA in particular is they often, you know, go to the front of the line in acquisitions. This is what happened to us with regard to a ventilator acquisition where, you know, we were basically told by the legitimate company and the CEO that, look, FEMA has delayed all the state orders. So, you know, it's not canceled. Maybe you'll get it someday in six months. But basically, FEMA's buying our entire production for four months. We can't fulfill yours. So, yes, we don't talk about things till they're here, uh, I guess, for two reasons. One is we don't really know that we have them till they're here because you never know what's happened with the global supply chain. But the other is, yeah, we don't want to give the competition, which could mean other countries, could mean our own country, could mean other states. We don't want to give them the heads up on what we're doing. I want to talk one more aspect around testing, and it actually intersects with another story that's been in the news, which has to do with meatpacking plants. So you've said if the feds are going to require that meatpackers keep their plants open, there ought to be commensurate testing for workers. Uh, Of course, we know there was a COVID-19 outbreak at a plant in Greeley. On Wednesday, you said you'd look at the president's order, that is to keep meatpacking plants open, quote, with a fine-toothed comb. 
Uh, have you have you run that comb yet through this? And have you turned up anything notable? Well, as is, that's we're, we're doing the legal analysis, but what we're also doing is we are doing the testing that, frankly, I think the federal government should be doing uh, since they did this executive order, meaning we are set up this week just a mile from the JBS plant doing community testing, testing for free. Over a thousand people have been tested. Uh, it's not just the JBS employees, it's friends, families, community members to really get eyes and ears on what exactly is going on to inform our future health decisions. I want to talk a bit about schools, which are currently scheduled to reopen in the fall. You can just picture parents crossing their fingers at that. Uh, We got a question from a student, Ethan Reed, who goes to Legend High School in Parker. Will our schools be safe? I hope to get back to school next year, but at the same time, I'm just really concerned and worried. Uh, Well, Ethan, uh, there's no regular classroom instruction for this year. We're going to finish out the year online the next few weeks. Uh, there'll be some sort of meaningful graduation ceremony. It won't be the type of commencement that we're accustomed to. It might be virtual. It might be delayed. It might just be the students without the families there. And then we're working on making sure that we have the best and safest practices in our schools for when we return to in-classroom instruction this coming fall. And to those who are concerned, because you talk about the fact that coronavirus is, you know, without um, a cure or a vaccine, this is going to be present. It's going to be a threat. And what what would you say to kids and to their parents who are concerned about school as mass gathering. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, the well before August, really in the next month or two, working with superintendents and others, we're creating those uh, the way that schools can operate in a safer way as possible. Now, we have a lot to learn internationally in Denmark, similar size and caseload to Colorado. Kids went back to school what, about a week and a half ago now. So we're getting a lot of data and learning from other places as we look at how schools can go back in the fall in the safest way as possible. There are usually 20-some kids in a classroom. I mean, is it realistic to get them situated six feet apart? Yeah, so that's a challenge that schools have. It's around how we can avoid what's called passing time, which is, you know, all 600 kids in the school in the hallways at the same time, uh, how we can have more small group work, uh, how we can make sure that we have safe physical distances between people while students are learning, and, of course, uh, keeping the staff safe as well. It's about the students, uh, but it's also about the teachers and others that work in the school and making sure they're in a safe environment. Those are the types of details that you're working on then. Let's talk a bit about the budget before we go. So there is a dilemma already facing lawmakers uh, economically who are looking at a possible $4 billion in cuts. K-12 through education, of course, is about a third of the state's budget. During the last recession, lawmakers took a lot of money from schools. Some of that has been restored over the last several years. But do you anticipate that schools will take a big cut again? Well, there's going to be belt tightening across our entire economy. I mean, families are feeling it who lost income. Cities and counties are feeling it. And of course, the state governments uh, are going to be feeling that, too. Um, now, we don't know exactly what that'll look like yet for two reasons. One is we're waiting on our budget projections. They come out the second week in May. That's what we're going to base this off of. The second is the federal government has uh, already authorized one tranche of money for states and local governments, and they're likely to do it another. That'll also be part of the budget. Uh, but yeah, of course, it's appropriate that in, in difficult economic times, the private sector tightens their belt, families do, and and so does the state. One signature victory from your first year in office was full-day kindergarten, and the budget writers are considering a scenario where that would have to go. What's your reaction? 
look, I don't want to eliminate any grade, but I would be more open to eliminating part of 12th grade than kindergarten. But they're all important. I think we should make sure we hold harmless all the grades of school and, and that we need to do cuts in a thoughtful way, not target specific grades, whether it's third or fifth or kindergarten or 12th. But, um, but yes, there would be more room on the higher grades like 12th than on the lower grades. But I, I really think we should look at all the grades together in an integrated way. How would you cut part of 12th grade? Well, I wouldn't. I think that we should keep all the grades whole, as I mentioned. Um, I think you have to look at the education system holistically, and that includes all the way from preschool through 12th grade, through community college and college level. You know, I, I don't think that this discussion of pitting certain grade levels against one another is a very productive way to go. Uh, I think we need to figure out how we can uh, weather this and get through this as a state. Ironically, although the focus has been on keeping hospitals from a deluge of COVID-19 cases, uh, some hospitals are in financial trouble. Uh, Fox 31 quotes the Colorado Hospital Association as saying that hospitals stand to lose $3 billion this year. Given the budgetary constraints, would, would there be anything the state could do to help them, to sort of see them as too big to fail? That That's to borrow a turn of phrase from an entirely different situation. Well, the state is a, a big payer uh, to the hospitals, largely through our Medicaid program. Uh, there was also additional assistance for hospitals in the federal bills. The CARES Act included money for directly for hospitals uh, precisely because of this reason. Do you think that's ample support for them? I mean, is it, is it all that they should expect? Well, you know, again, it, it also depends on exactly what hospital. I think part of the reason that April was a difficult month for hospitals is we had to delay all of the elective surgeries, the non-emergency surgeries that people need. That is now no longer in effect. Those could occur. They are occurring. That is a critical part of the business model of hospitals. So just as many of us have made sacrifices in April and didn't work and people closed their stores and, and, and delayed their businesses, hospitals too weren't doing any of those non-emergency procedures during April. But they are they are back. Governor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Democratic Governor Jared Polis spoke with us Thursday from his home in Boulder. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the lessons frontline healthcare workers have learned during the pandemic and how those lessons may carry forward. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. News about the coronavirus changes daily. And every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Give to CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day at CPR.org. The governor's decision to ease the state's stay-at-home order could mean more challenging times ahead for nurses and doctors, but they have also learned a lot along the way. Here's CPR's Andrea Dukakis. 
Nurses and doctors, especially those in intensive care units, are used to intensity, but the complexity of COVID-19 and the rapid decline some patients experience have been striking for nurses like Courtney Hoffbauer. She wants Colorado to move slowly as it allows more people to be out and about. I appreciate a soft opening and I appreciate us easing into this to really try and get a handle on and understand what the next few weeks is going to look like for us. Hoffbauer is Director of Acute Care Services at Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs, and she's thinking well beyond her hospital walls. We want to make sure that our community is safe. At the same time, doctors and nurses also get the economic toll the shutdown has taken. They have friends and family who have lost jobs or fear losing them. Dr. Dylan Leuten is medical director of the emergency department at Swedish Medical Center in Metro Denver. We're members of the community and the economy as well, and we feel the same stresses that everybody else does uh, financially and personally and emotionally. So I think it's fair to say that generally we welcome the relaxation and the opening of the economy. Dr. Leuten says he realizes the change will probably mean some increase in the total number of sick patients. But he says Colorado hospitals are much more prepared today than they were before the crisis started. I think now we have a lot more experience and understanding of our capacity and our ability to surge and develop backup plans of care. Dr. Lloyd isn't just talking about adequate numbers of hospital beds and equipment. Learning to handle COVID-19 has also required medical staff to do things they've never done before. Primarily what I'm doing is Zoom or FaceTime phone calls or video phone calls with the families and the patients. When COVID-19 hit, nurse Heather Estrada was moved from her old job at Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs to work in its ICU. Now much of what she does involves helping families and friends talk to each other since they can't visit in person during the pandemic. She schedules the calls and she's in the room to hold the phone or iPad for patients who are too sick to do it themselves. They get a big smile on their face try to mouth words or they try to give thumbs up. A lot of COVID-19 patients are intubated and can't talk, but they listen. I've had patients where they're not necessarily moving a lot, but then when they hear their family members, they start moving their heads a little bit more. She says even more than ever, she sometimes feels like a de facto family member, staying by a patient's bedside, sometimes holding their hand to ward off loneliness. I really do get to sit with those patients a little bit more, and I get to hear more of those family stories, and I get to be just in that family for a moment. Doctors, too, have had to adapt to new ways of communicating. They often have to explain sensitive, complex medical information by phone to family members. Dr. Joseph Forrester is a critical care physician and pulmonologist in the Denver area. We're trying to express how sick they are, how much equipment they have on them, give them some idea of prognosis. Dr. Forrester says it's common that a family member has had to drop someone off at the hospital and hasn't seen them in days. It's quite difficult for our families to go from having someone at home doing relatively well to being critically ill 
and then being unable to see them in that transition. Dr. Forrester sees silver linings in the crisis. The better communication between families, patients, and healthcare workers could help long after the coronavirus subsides. In the short term, as hospitals wait and see what comes in the next several weeks, Dr. Lloyden in Denver says he feels better prepared with equipment and experience. And nurse Courtney Hoffbauer in Colorado Springs says it's made her grateful for what she does. This has been one of the most overwhelming, but at the same time, such a humbling experience. These last several weeks have really reminded me why nursing was my calling. Colorado hospitals say they don't know how long the no-visitors rule will be in effect, nor can doctors and nurses predict what more will be required of them as the state opens up. Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. The pandemic has forced many businesses to adapt. Some have found opportunity amidst the uncertainty. Krista Kushik and her family recently bought a small suburban farm in Arvada. It's called Crescendum Flower Farm and Events. This is our very first year, and we have lots of ideas that we were very excited about. And as the world now knows, things have changed a little bit. So we've decided to change a little bit. Instead of growing flowers this year, Kushik planted vegetables. Flowers, they're beautiful to look at, and I, I know they can help raise spirits, but at the same time, They don't fill bellies, and I think that there's going to be a lot of bellies that are going to need to be fed as we come out of this crisis. She put out a call to neighbors, friends, anyone who had seeds to spare asking for contributions, and she got a huge response. At the moment, I have no idea how I'm going to harvest and get all those vegetables to where they need to be come, you know, midsummer and early fall. But I th- think it's one of those things that everything has worked out so far. And so I will call on those volunteers when that time comes. And just given the re- response that I've already seen, I-, I can't imagine that being much of a problem to find people to help out with that. Because I think everybody is looking for a way to help if they can, even if it's not in a monetary sense, you know, what sort of actions can we each be doing that are really going to make a difference? Once the veggies are harvested, Kushik says they'll go to two area food banks, Community Table in Arvada and Metro Caring in Denver. I think that this has really inspired us to always keep at least a corner of the land that we have and continue this effort because it's not just in times of crisis that people need food that, you know, are in a, a tough spot. Krista Kushik of Crescendum Flower Farm and Events in Arvada. With the help of volunteers, she has started growing vegetables to donate to local food banks. Another business that has adapted during this pandemic, Yeti Cycles in Golden. CPR's Kelly Griffin takes us inside the high-end mountain bike manufacturer. At Yeti Cycles, the pandemic offers a chance to experiment. Vice President and co-founder Steve Hugendorn gets to work early to check on the new product coming out of the plant. State regulations declared the cycle manufacturer an essential business early on, so it stayed open and looked for a way to help. We have quite a bit of skill in random areas of production, and we have you know quite a few engineers on staff too. But it's if you look at all the PPE stuff and we sit, you know sat down and said, what can we do, what, what can we do to help, the shields is something that's, there was open source designs out on the uh, internet, and it's it's something 
you know, we didn't have all the equipment, but it's something we could do pretty quickly. From the start, Hugendorn says their plan was to offer the face shields for free. But in a situation like this, it's like a motivation to to help where you can and do the right thing, and, and especially if you have the ability to do that. The simple plastic face shields add a layer of protection for healthcare workers, hospital staff, first responders, and anyone else working at this time. To get started, Yeti needed supplies a huge roll of plastic from a Wisconsin firm, specially made rivets from an Arizona company. Two outdoor supply companies donated straps. Hugendorn says they've spent nearly $40,000 so far, but in just a few days, the company was ready to make face shields. By 10 a.m., production in the massive warehouse is in full swing. Workers are set up more than six feet apart at separate workstations. Back in my office... Um, production's going well on the shields. We have about 10 bike orders from yesterday that part of the staff is working on, and then uh, they will move over for the afternoon, and we should have full production <clears throat> over on shields. Yeti Cycles put out a press release offering the masks, and they were soon spoken for within 48 hours. They'll go to 260 different places, hospitals, senior centers, police and fire departments, the RTD. On this day, the plant also ships out 2,500 shields completed earlier in the week. The people receiving them, you know, so far we did deliveries today and everybody was pretty excited. Like many small businesses, Hugendorn has a federal loan through the Paycheck Protection Program. It's enough to cover two and a half months of rent, utilities and payroll for about 60 workers. And at Yeti, there are still bikes to build. There are existing orders and some continue to come in. At about 5 p.m., workers finish up for the day. Looks like we made about 1,000 today. Good push by the crew, and uh, all the equipment's holding up, so that's uh, something to be happy about. By 6.45, Hugendorn is the last one in the warehouse, planning work for the next day. The only plastic he can find now will cost almost four times more than their first source. That takes his cost from $0.29 worth of plastic material per shield to $0.96. He's committed to making a total of 20,000 shields. Hugendorn says they already have requests for more that they can't promise as of now. Now we're turning people away, which is unfortunate, but um, I just think material is going to be too difficult to find, um, which is sad. Hugendorn doesn't know if he'll be able to find affordable supplies to make more face shields. And of course, he doesn't know how the cycling business will work in the months ahead. Yeti forecasts a 50% drop in revenue for April and May, two months when they would normally do at least a quarter of the year's sales. Eventually the factory's done, just kind of have to sit there and wait uh, until things pick up. And then, of course, everybody's going to want it tomorrow, and uh, nobody will have it. (laughs) But I think that would be a good problem to have at this point. For now, Hugendorn says they'll piece together whatever work they can to help the company ride this out. I'm Kelly Griffin, CPR News. This story is part of COVID Diaries Colorado, a collaboration of more than 20 newsrooms across the state to collect stories about one day in the life. The diaries were recorded April 16th. Well, one Denver couple found this was actually the perfect time to start a new business. CPR's Sam Brash and May Ortega checked it out for At a Distance, the podcast from CPR News about life during the pandemic. So, May, recently you and I were stuck in a pretty frightening situation. 
Right. You mean when we were trapped like in an underwater shipwreck? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> when we were trapped in an underwater shipwreck with only an hour of oxygen strapped to our backs. Like this was not good. Oh no. Okay. How much time do we have? Oh no. <laughs> got about 18 minutes left. Oh no. Okay. No, I don't feel like we're that far. Okay. Okay, so full disclosure, we weren't actually drowning. Um, This was all part of a virtual puzzle room we played over Zoom. Yeah, that's a sentence I never thought I would hear. This is a crazy time to be alive, and here we are in the year 2020. (laughs) In this scenario, obviously, we were pretend stuck. But, May, it got me thinking about, like, how many people there are out there who are actually stuck right now. Right, like people who may be stuck in their houses right now. Or stuck in a dangerous job they can't leave, stuck in a relationship they might want out of. Life is just on pause for so many people. But not for everyone. The couple who trapped us in this underwater shipwreck, they are not stuck. They're actually thriving in this new strange economy. Yeah, you're right. Like At a time when jobs and businesses are collapsing around us, This is a rare pandemic success story. So this episode, how one small business is making it work by helping people like us imagine our own escape. Okay, so May, before we get into this, you told me you're you're not much of a puzzle person, right? No, I mean, I like games, but not puzzles so much. They're not they're not really my thing. So I thought I was a puzzle person. Like, I like jigsaw puzzles and puzzle boxes and even, you know, math problems. But, you know, everything is relative. When you and I spoke to this couple, James and Alyssa Warner, they live here in Denver, I realized that compared to them, I'm like a puzzle second grader. They're like (laughs) puzzle PhDs. So we met in 2012. We realized that we really liked puzzles. Um, We each liked them just independently of each other. And come Christmas of 2014, this started a tradition to incorporate our love of puzzles into the way that we would give presents. And it started off with really simple scavenger hunts around the apartment. And over the years, it grew really in scope and complexity. For example, she's a marathon runner. And so I gave her turn-by-turn directions. I drove her to an intersection, and she had to run a GPS pattern using her GPS watch. So when she gets back to the apartment, she can see that the GPS track that she ran was the word railing. So she goes out to the apartment (laughs) railing and she pulls up her present that had been lowered on a string. Oh, my God. The couple that puzzles together stays together. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's a good one. We're going to remember that when we're frustrated at each other's puzzles. (laughs) But this last Christmas, James and Alyssa realized they wanted to create different kinds of puzzles for each other. Their friends and their family loved hearing about these gifts, but they couldn't play along. So for 2019, we decided that we were going to write out these game scripts for each other that we just played across the table. And we called some of my family and we realized instead of just, you know, retiring our puzzle hunts that we spend like a significant amount of time creating for each other, like we could actually share it with people. And the people they shared it with, they loved these puzzles so much, they told James and Alyssa to make it into a business, a kind of remote escape room empire. Both of them still have day jobs. James works for the federal government, and Alyssa works in science communications. But they decided, what the hell, let's do it. 
They landed on a name, Perusal, because it sounds kind of puzzly, and they plan to launch sometime this summer. But then, you know, that pandemic thing happened, and they realized that this was the time. We heard of so many people staying home, so many people being socially distant, and the puzzlers of the world uh, still need something to do. So we wanted to provide a service to those puzzlers and uh, give back to the community that we've enjoyed for five years now. Wow. I mean, was there a moment when you sort of knew that you had a successful business on your hands? Uh, So from my perspective, I was really floored when I got an email one day asking if we would be the entertainment for a 12-year-old girl's birthday party. It was so enlightening to me. So we're not parents, but the frustration in that mother's voice as she was getting the call set up and, oh, is Becky online? Is Susie there? And finally, whenever everybody got connected and we took over, the sigh of relief on that mother's face and the girls giggling the whole way through it, uh, that really meant a lot to us. And May, I think this is the moment you and I realized that we didn't understand a key piece of this whole story. Like, their business might be succeeding, but (laughs) I don't think we really understood what it was. Yeah, no, like, how do you make an escape room into, like, an audio-only experience? Like, the physical aspect is in the name. It's a room. (laughs) Yeah! Um, (laughs) Exists physically somewhere in space. Uh, So we decided (laughs) to give it a try. Well, let's just jump in and and let's play this game. Um, James and Alyssa, are you there? And just to set the scene here quick, we were both at our homes. We had headphones, laptops, pens, Mm -hmm. and paper. And then we get a Zoom call from James and Alyssa. Hello, and welcome to this production from Perusal, your home for live-hosted <laughs> online escape rooms. As we get started... We learned that James and Alyssa each had roles to play. Your game mistress is already on the call with us. That's Alyssa. And I will be your clue genie for this game. Can everybody see... And that's James, obviously. Great. Clue genie James. Excellent titles. <laughs> Alyssa then read our scenario to us. In this puzzle, Sam and I are intrepid scuba divers set to explore a shipwreck. You leave the marina in upstate New York as planned and head out to the first shipwreck, the Vickery. You start descending and soon see the big hole in the side of the shipwreck, and when you find it, you go in first. As you clear the opening, an iron grate suddenly slides into place from the hole's edges. Oh no! (laughs) The drama unfolds. Oh no. That leaves you one hour to get out of the Vickery. And now is also a good time to start taking notes. Okay. All right. At this point, the image of the shipwreck shows up on the screen. It shows that we're trapped inside with random ship stuff and oxygen is running out. And we have several puzzles to solve if we want any hope of getting out of here. Right. We got (laughs) death to be defied here. But then May, we begin to explore the ship. And for an intrepid scuba diver, I found out you don't know much about, like, uh, ship stuff. Now, Sam, this is going to be a dumb question. What is a mast? (laughs) (laughs) 
Not gonna lie, I thought my lack of knowledge about nautical life would have held us back, but I guess not. Nope, we moved right on. I taught you what a mass was. We swim through this ship and found codes for locks. And it pops open. Woo! Hey, good job. Open bags of fish food to draw sharks. Oh, there's sharks in here now? That's great. <laughs> They're baby sharks. They're the cute ones, not the like... Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. And finally, we found an old painting of the ship, which clued us into the location of an ancient key. And with just seconds to spare... You put the key in the small keyhole, wondering if the lock still works or if it's too rusty to open. You really might be stuck in here forever, but the key slides in easily, and as you turn it, you feel the lock opening. You're finally (laughs) able to lift the grate up, and as you do so, you swim out from the Vickery. You're finally free. Oh, oh my God, we oh are free. Cool. Congratulations, Nate. Congratulations, Sam. Did we make it you, out within the hour or did we run out? I think you were very over. close. Yeah, yeah it seems you like were it. a little on the long side of it. Yeah, so we, we ended <laughs> at uh, one hour, three minutes and four seconds. Oh my gosh. Oh, so we, we died, but we barely died. We, but, but we barely died, but we made it. And I think, May, even though you aren't a puzzler, even though you don't really do escape rooms, you really like this, right? Yeah, I did. It, it it was just really fun. It got my brain working in ways that it really hasn't worked in a while, especially mm-hmm. being stuck at home. I can honestly say that for a second there, I really did forget about the real world situation and was just in this imaginary moment. That was probably my favorite part of all of this. Yeah, I loved it too. I had a total blast. And James and Alyssa say we're far from the only ones who want to play their games. Each of these costs 15 bucks a person. It goes up to about eight people. And they're booked up days in advance. They basically have this new source of income. Well, and it's also so interesting how they're thinking about that success because we weren't sure if it was something they planned for or, you know, like a happy accident. (laughs) I think a little bit of both. We definitely got lucky, but one piece of advice is if you have an idea, maybe it's not exactly what you envisioned, but if you have a way to make it remote friendly, maybe explore that right now. Since, you know, you are doing so well, do you have people in your lives who are struggling? Yeah, we've got family that is very much struck by this, that we've got um, teachers, like we have a cousin in New York who works in the theater industry and Nobody's going to theater these days. The best we can do is, in this particular case, this cousin who's a displaced theater worker is we're putting her to work with some of our games. Because we play the game that she advised us on, we're able to cut her a check. Part of the reason I was so interested in you guys is like, I almost feel like maybe you're one of the pioneers of like the remote economy. Like you're really trying to get people to interact in a way they did in the physical world now on the internet. Very much so. So a lot of the brick and mortar shops are having a, had a problem transitioning. So we're in some of the groups of escape room owners and whatnot. And there's a lot of talk there about how to keep these commonly small businesses running during the pandemic. So a lot of them are transitioning to things like the owner can still go into his place of business and he'll wear a GoPro on his head And so folks are transitioning as best they can, given these changes. 
Accidental or not, Alyssa and James have some tips for anybody thinking about starting their own remote business. Hints from the clue genie, so to speak, because Perusal <laughs> isn't the only venture that's coming out of this pandemic. All sorts of creative people are trying to take their crafts online. We have mm -hmm. ticketed online plays. We have ticketed online <laughs> sports events, live cooking classes, workout classes. Even podcasts. Even <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> and this strange new economy has helped revive some older industries too, like drive-in theaters. Now, we're not saying you should have to have some brilliant idea to survive right now. The most important thing is to take care of yourself and of others. For this couple, that just happened to include launching a business. And if you're in the same place, here's some ideas for what to keep in mind. First, be flexible. Maybe you have a business idea that seemed perfect for the before times. See if it can be adjusted. That flexibility includes not rigidly sticking to our original plans, because had we done that, we'd be writing episodes now rather than talking to you. Second, technology is tough. If your idea depends on people interacting online, try out different platforms. We're very heavily dependent on Zoom. Doesn't mean it's gonna work for everyone. Like if someone's starting a business, definitely like explore your options, figure out what's gonna work for you. Third, know everyone's life has been upended. That means customers might not come from places you'd expect. Be open to unexpected occurrences. Like again, us having kids' birthday parties, like we had no idea. So be open and flexible to that sort of thing. Finally, think about what you'd want to be doing right now and sell that. We didn't go into this saying, ooh, I want to make oodles of money. We went into this with the idea of there's a community of puzzlers like us that want something to do. Sam Brash and May Ortega, hosts of CPR's podcast, At a Distance. You can find this and other episodes for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us. You can follow Colorado Matters on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. This is CPR News.